Hey everybody, welcome into the Potato Cast, America's finest healthcare podcast named after a cat. My name is Mike Hess. I am a respiratory therapist by training, but what I'm trying to do with this program is to break down complex issues throughout the healthcare system so that we can all work together to make them better. Uh, if you support what we're doing here, please feel free to check out my other media on uh, YouTube and Facebook under the brand COPD Navigator. You can also check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash Mike RRT and uh, give me a little support if you like what we're doing here. Finally, if you have any suggestions at all for the program, please feel free to let me know at potatocast at copdnavigator.net. Looking forward to hearing from you. Now, on with the show. Hey folks, again, welcome into the Potato Cast. This is Mike. Um, we're recording this after some delays in the middle of this uh, incredibly unusual novel coronavirus pandemic. Um, this particular episode is not specifically about coronavirus because I think we can all use a little bit of a break from that from some time. But it, I do think it has some lessons that we can take away from it um, because these are the issues that coronavirus, ha this coronavirus has put forward. Um, really are emblematic of things that exist in the healthcare system anyway. They're just getting a little bit more attention because uh, everything is, is front and center in the news right now. So this particular episode is about how sometimes we're asking the wrong questions, and when we ask the wrong questions, we can't help but get the wrong answers. And even sometimes when we're asking the right questions, we may interpret the data not quite the way we should. Um, and so what I'm going to do first off here is give you kind of a strange analogy. Um, many of you probably don't know this, of course, but I am kind of a font junkie. As part of my hobby life, um, I like to mess around with graphic design stuff. I like to create logos and I like to um, just do a lot of that kind. Of, I was never really much of an artist per se, but I really enjoy a lot about graphic design. And of course, a, a big part of that is font choice, font selection, font uh, usage, and all that kind of thing. I think it's critically important. Uh, my kids and I, uh, even my wife, we get into these weird uh, discussions sometimes about how sometimes I will focus in on the graphic design elements or, or something like that instead of actually reading the message. And, and I think that's important um, for a couple of reasons that I plan to get into today. But what I'm going to talk about today is uh, something that you may not have even noticed uh, it certainly escaped a lot of folks' notice, but being a font junkie, I started catching on to it fairly quickly. And this was um, probably, well, within the last decade or so, because well, every state's a little bit different. The rollout was a little bit different. But starting back about 2004, there was a new font that was um, permitted slash recommended slash approved, whatever you want to call it. Um, for highway signs, you know, if you're driving down the interstate or that sort of thing, uh, the things that the mile marker signs, the exit signs, all those things, um, of course, have to have a particular font. And in the early 2000s, that font was changed. Um, it was pretty remarkable for folks um, who are into that sort of thing, whether it's uh, highway engineers or, or font uh, font junkies, because this was really the first time in boy, what, 70 years or so, 60, 70 years that the font had changed. Um, the initial font that we all likely grew up with, um, it was called Highway Gothic, and it was originally created in the 1940s by uh, an organization called the Public Roads Administration that eventually became the Federal Highway Administration. Um, and this was, you know, they, they did some research on it. They 
looked at how best to design the letter forms and and the glyphs and all that stuff. And it worked fine for a very long time. But then, you know, 1940s, you know, it's been 60 years or so. People are starting to get older and, you know, we're starting to think more about how people think and how people respond to stimuli and, and that sort of thing. And particularly as many of the drivers who grew up with Iway Gothic were starting to get a little bit older. You know, this was the, the, the beginning of the aging, the baby boomer aging boom, I guess. And so it meant a lot of folks were, you know, maybe having that age-related decline in their eyesight. And we had to be a little bit more careful about how the letter forms worked. It seemed that certain letters, particularly those that had like um, internal blobs like E and A, or even in some cases a lowercase s, where it looks like it might almost close off into an inner spot. Um, These had some issues. They might appear to be like another one of their uh, counterparts. They may look like a, a small letter O, that sort of thing. And it's not necessarily that big a deal because maybe it takes a second look. But again, when you're driving 70 miles an hour on the highway, uh, maybe at night or things like that, you don't necessarily want to take that second look because maybe you, even in an age of GPS and and voice guided assistance and all that sort of thing, if you think, whoops, in an age of GPS and voice guided assistance, if you think you know what you're doing and then all of a sudden you get data that is contrary to that, it startles you. And again, the last thing you want when you're doing 70 miles an hour, particularly in a high traffic area, is to be startled and kind of thrown off your path. So we wanted to, we, they wanted to make sure that um, everybody was getting the highest visibility possible and the clearest instructions possible. So there was this whole idea, well, we're going to come up with this new font. We're going to make it easier. We're going to uh, make sure that those letter blobs don't, uh, don't push out and all that. kind. Of- so two gentlemen by the name of Donald Meeker, and James Montalbano created this new font called Clearview. And this was going to be all the problem solved. This was um, a lot easier to read, and it was it was beautiful. And, of course, at the time, the Federal Highway Administration seemed to support that. In the memo that uh, uh, where they approved the use of this font on highway signs, they said that their studies had shown that um, you can get an extra 80 feet of reading distance at 45 miles an hour, which translated to a little over a second. So again, you can kind of see it, interpret it a little bit faster. You can get on all that sort of thing. Um, the Texas Transportation Institute at Texas A&M University. I love this courtesy of a website called CityLab.com, where I, I first saw some of these confounding factors things. Um, all of these things seem to approve that this clear view was going really well um, and this was a big success this font was fantastic it was very popular there's a, a magazine dedicated to this sort of thing called print magazine called it one of the 10 most uh, important typefaces of the decade um, it's in the design museum at the smithsonian uh, this was a really big deal in the font community but all of a sudden um, some additional research went into it and they studied it for about another 10 years. Cause again, remembering that each, uh, uh state, uh, in, in some cases, even localities 
adopted this at different times because, you know, again, you don't necessarily want to spend a whole lot of money uh, to go out and just replace all the signs if it's not necessary. Uh, when we, uh, they, I worked for an organization that changed their logo at one point and they did not have us all run out and get new business cards or things like that. They said, you know, your business cards will be replaced uh, when they wear out or when you've run out. Um, certain signs were replaced right away others were like well we're going to wait and you know just as things get replaced we're going to do that so we don't waste all this money so it took a while to get for this to get really widespread adoption enough so that we could study it um and eventually the federal highway administration said well maybe this isn't as good an idea as we thought uh, because one thing to remember is that as you're replacing a sign, you're replacing it for a reason. It's worn out, it's dirty, it's faded, so on and so forth. And so regardless of the font, when you put a new sign out there, it's probably going to look better. It's probably going to be easier to read. It's probably going to be more popular, all of these things. And then in addition to that, what they found was if you have what's known as a negative contrast color, for example, when we're talking about highways, we're talking about like uh, speed limit signs. You're talking about black letters, white backgrounds, yellow backgrounds, dark on light, as opposed to the usual highway color of light on dark. In those cases, this new font actually seemed to do a little bit worse than the original highway gothic. So, you know, again, maybe this font wasn't as great as it actually appeared to be. So it's really a question of, you know, we had this, we had this new paradigm. We had this idea of we, we wanted to do better. We thought we were doing better and all the signs pointed to we were doing better. Then all of a sudden they didn't. And so how do we, how do we fix that? What is, how do we account for some of these things when we're doing research? And again, this, this is in the highway mode. And I, there is this great takeaway quote, again, from this uh, CityLab.com article from Donald Meeker himself, one of the designers who said, traffic design is the greatest public manifestation of government on any given day. And yet it's the most dreadful, tired, unresearched, undesigned part of the public interface with government. And while that is certainly true for government, no matter how one may feel about government, there's also a great deal of truth to that in the healthcare system. And for that, we're going to go into another study, another landmark study that came out. Um, uh, let's see, let me switch papers here. So this was another landmark study that was done uh, with data that just uh, another like follow-up study was done in, and released in uh, 2019 um, where in the early probably the early 2000s I suppose uh, more of a lung guy than a heart guy and this is this has to do with heart disease um, but they found that is in coronary artery disease for quite a while this idea of well okay if you have coronary artery disease where you have your arteries are blocked they have plaques and all that kind of stuff maybe we should go in and put a stent in a stent is this small wiry box thing um, that can prop up these uh your your collapsed arteries your blocked arteries in many cases they even coat them with a particular medication to prevent this collapse from happening again um, and it's supposed to work really well for a long time it seemed to work really well and it was 
the best thing going. It was the, this was uh, the state of the art. This was a standard of care. Um, even with people who maybe didn't necessarily have symptoms, they just found these blockages during uh, other examinations or on uh, some folks, if you have chest pain, when you're exerting yourself during strenuous activity or exercise, um, you know, that, that's when we were, we were putting these stents in, in everybody. The, the healthcare system was, was putting every, these, uh, these things in there because it was easier than doing a bypass surgery. You know, this is a thing you can go in with a catheter, you can kind of thread it up through the circulatory system. I think this is one of those where they usually go in through the, the, uh, the thigh, uh, one of the big femoral arteries there, thread things up until they get to the heart and then deploy this stent. But then they did another follow-up trial over a four-year period. Uh, this study included 5,179 participants from 37 countries with moderate or severe ischemia, uh, which is where you don't have enough blood flow to the heart tissue itself and parts of that start to die, which is often what causes that, that pain, that chest pain. And so what they did was this was a, a pretty solidly designed program where they randomly assigned participants to either have the procedure, um, the bypass surgery or a stent. And then they also, um, the other arm had medical therapy, just you, you were on drugs to reduce cholesterol, you were on drugs to fix your um, blood pressure and then lifestyle changes because we all know drugs alone can't do everything, believe it or not. And so we're trying to lower cholesterol through, um, um, behavioral changes. And so the thought was, we're going to have all these better outcomes because you're actually doing a thing, right? You're actually having a procedure, you're changing the, the internal structures, you're preventing these things from happening, you're giving this, this sturdy thing that's going to prevent the collapse again, you're propping everything open, you're actually doing something rather than prescribing some more medications or, you know, here's hoping that your patient will adhere to their regimen or, you know, they'll start eating better, which has, you know, all kinds of other issues that goes along with it. It's clear that if you can do a thing and you have control over it, it's going to work a lot better than if you just give some advice and take your chances. But that isn't really what they found out. This was a four-year study, and they looked at, uh, according to the readout, they looked at a median of 3.3 years, and they looked at about five different outcomes. And they found that there really wasn't a statistical difference in outcomes between the people who had the standard medical therapy and the people who had medical therapy plus all the, the stents and bypass, and, you know, the procedures, the doing of the stuff. So initially, you look at that outcome and you say, wow, okay, so we don't need to do any outcomes because we're looking at, um, you know, obviously there's not that big a deal. We can save a whole lot of money. We can have, save a whole lot of stress for doing a thing that we don't really need to do then. Okay. We'll stop doing it. But then again, there's some confounding factors. Um, if you look at different points in time, you look at, uh, let's see. So the group that underwent bypass surgeries and stents had heart attacks or other events at a higher rate, six months into treatment. So this was, you know, about 5% of the people who had um, the procedure done had a heart attack or other bad event uh, compared to about 3% of the people who didn't. So now we're looking at, oh, now not only are we not making a difference, we're actually actively making things worse. We're, we're doing the opposite of do no harm. 
But then again, if you look at the longer time frame, if you go closer to four years, people who had surgeries or stents had fewer heart attacks uh, and fewer uh, adverse effects to uh, a kind of the opposite degree. There were about 13% of the people who had a procedure who had a heart attack compared to the uh, medical and lifestyle improvements who had uh, over 15%. So depending on what time frame you look at, this is either a good thing to do a procedure or a bad thing to do a procedure. You also have to look at the kind of patient that you're, you may be doing these things. So about half the folks who went uh, uh, did the, uh, the therapy um, no longer had symptoms a year after, whereas about only 20% of those who did the, the lifestyle medical therapy had no symptoms. So... Are we talking, what is the more important outcome here? Are we looking at heart attacks? Are we looking at quality of life improvements? What is it that we're looking at? Symptom burden? You know, these are questions that we in healthcare have to ask all the time because where I live in the COPD world is we're, we're seeing a lot of these issues come to, come to the fore, although not as much as I would personally like if I can soapbox for a second. We're seeing that for in many cases, we look specifically at things like number of symptom exacerbations, symptom flares. We look at how many times you have to go into the hospital. We look at time frame to death, we call it mortality. Um, you know, we look at those things as these primary outcomes for uh, a lot of therapies, a lot of the medications we do, a lot of the, the rehabilitation things that we do. We even look at things like that when, when we're looking at, for example, lung transplants. A lot of the thing has been, uh, you know, are we adding longevity? And some of the data has told us that, well, no, we're not really. So do we continue doing these things? Do we continue on with um, looking for, for folks to do lung transplants? Do we keep doing, you know, the uh, advocacy campaigns to do uh, organ transplants and organ donation and all that sort of thing? Or are we really just not doing much at all? But then we look at things like what we call patient-reported outcomes, where we start looking at quality of life improvements. We have a couple of different tests that we can use to evaluate whether people are actually enjoying their life a little bit more, if they're a little bit less short of breath, if they're coughing a little bit less, which is kind of a big deal because many people with COPD have a frequent cough. And you don't necessarily want to do a lot of the things in your life if you're going to be coughing all the time. For example, I have a lot of people tell me that they don't necessarily like going to church anymore because in the middle of the sermon or, or what have you, or in the middle of even, you know, quiet reflection or prayer time, all of a sudden they have one of these giant coughing fits. And now everybody's looking at them and wondering what's wrong with that person and all that sort of thing. So aren't these patient reported outcomes perhaps just as important, if not more so even? Do we not necessarily want to, if we can't add years to somebody's life, isn't it good enough to add life to somebody's years? These are questions we need to start asking more frequently, not only in COPD, but in a lot of interventions. We focus so much on, on in, our, in our society, in our culture, whatever label we want to put on it, we focus a lot on living, on the, on the clock of life itself. We don't necessarily put a lot of thought into that quality of life stuff. And we can get into um, 
discussions about quality adjusted life years or disability adjusted life years there's a lot of different metrics that we can use to look at it and we may get into that in future episodes of the program but as simple as just asking somebody what do you want what do you want out of your life do you have a a a goal in mind that we know again sticking with the copd world we know that we cannot necessarily restore you to perfect lung health. We know that while there are some folks who are still able to be very active and um, even running marathons and stuff with significant decreases in their airflow, we can't do that for all people. So what do you want? A lot of people don't want to run a marathon anyway. So what do you want? Do you want to travel more? Do you want to simply go to the end of the driveway without getting short of breath? What do you want out of your life? And can't we consider that a win? You know, we may not be able to extend someone's life, but can we make them enjoy what they have? Another issue that we see in COPD, particularly uh, very similar to these, these heart condition folks, is we put this kind of one-size-fits-all definition in place and in some ways that's good for example it's it's a lot easier to um, advocate for a disease that has for example 10 million people than 10 diseases that have uh, 1 million people each you know it it is unfortunately a numbers game in um, in a lot of these things for fair unfair whatever hopefully that's one of these things that again working together through things like the potato cast we can start to address but it is what it is so we need to have this big disease umbrella in order to do things like uh, fight for research funding and awareness campaigns and all that sort of thing but we also know that inside the world of copd we have some people who their primary symptom is that they cough a lot for example those churchgoers we were just talking about we have a lot of people who get very short of breath on exercise we have a lot of people who maybe their biggest thing is there. It's kind of like it's similar to the asthma world where maybe they're fairly normal most of the time, but then all of a sudden they seasonally or they get exposed to some kind of irritant and all of a sudden they go into a fit and they have to go to the ER because the home stuff just isn't working. We have a lot of these different, we call them phenotypes. We have a lot of these different classes of person with a lot of different symptoms and they're all in COPD they're all unified by this idea that they you can't get the air back out of your lungs and that leads to a lot of other issues in that but we know that a lot of these problems aren't necessarily great for one or another we have therapies where we can actually um, pound on the chest or use devices that that um, vibrate uh, some of the the phlegm mucus junk whatever you want to call it we get that out through those aspects but if you have somebody who has actual tissue damage like uh, emphysema many people are probably likely are likely familiar with the idea of emphysema they may not have as much of those secretions as somebody with more of the chronic bronchitis stuff so those therapies might not work now when you're designing a research study it's really difficult to account for a lot of those things because we have this diagnosis of copd you get tested you have your spirometry test done your your lung function test done and you get this diagnosis and when you're in the clinical trial they don't necessarily ask what phenotype you have they say do you have copd yes okay well you're in and so we have a lot of these therapies that maybe the data isn't quite accurate because maybe they work for one subset better than another 
And maybe that's why the data wasn't as robust or, or wasn't as positive as, as we might have hoped it would be. That doesn't mean that it doesn't work or it doesn't work for anybody. It just means we need to be a little bit more judicious about how we're designing some of these tests. And again, we, th we throw money into there because it, you know it's hard to drill down into some of the, these aspects of the data. Um, it's, it gets really complicated. But again, it's some, these are what the confounding factors are. Just like uh, when we're trying to decide whether it's the font or the fact that the sign is new, we need to be looking at all of the things that could affect the outcome of our studies. The other big thing that I, I want to point out there, especially for, and, and this is this is relevant to pretty much anybody with, with a chronic lung condition, we have, again, particularly in the COPD world, we've kind of lamented the fact that we don't have a lot of new therapeutic classes for medications out there. We've got a couple different kinds of bronchodilators. We have inhaled steroids that can bring down inflammation. But we haven't really developed a lot of new types of molecules out there. We haven't really seen a lot of improvement in, in these therapeutic classes. And accordingly, we have not seen a lot of change in these outcomes, like mortality and things like that. And so we have this big issue of uh, what are we going to do? We keep spinning our wheels. We, we keep doing a lot of the same things over and over again. We just can't get anywhere. We need this scientific breakthrough. We need something. But let's look at another issue that we've had um, over the course of the last 40 years. Of course, many people with lung problems use inhaled medications. We use inhaled medications because it goes right to the source of the problem. Uh, it's the equivalent of using a, a cream to address a rash. You know, you don't necessarily want to take a pill to do one rash because then you know, you're affecting all your, all your other bodily or, uh, um, um, systems. With inhalers, we can get right to the source. We can use a smaller amount of medication and it gets right to where it needs to be. And so there tend to be fewer side effects, there tend to be fewer interactions, all that sort of thing. But the problem is it's a little more difficult to use an inhaled medication than it is to apply a cream or to swallow a pill. Um, I tell people all the time, if you can swallow a pill, you can swallow a capsule, you can swallow a tablet, you can swallow a caplet, you can do all of these things. It doesn't really matter. The, the vehicle that the medication in matters a lot less. Similarly, lotions, gels, creams, all basically the same kind of thing. You, you, you apply them in a particular spot. You may have some differences in the thickness of application or, you know, all that kind of thing. But it's essentially the same thing. With inhalers, we have several different kinds of devices. We have several different formulations, all that sort of thing. We have some devices that require a lot of coordination between squeezing it and inhaling. These are the, the traditional, what we call a pressurized meter dose inhaler, or the, the puffer, as many people call them. We have dry powder inhalers that don't require as much coordination, but you need to have enough inhalation oomph in order to get the powder out and get it down into your lungs. We have nebulizers, which don't really require much inhalation technique at all, but need to be held a certain way and um, aren't necessarily very portable, uh, where you can take it with you if you need that, that quick-acting uh, reliever kind of medication. There are a lot of different issues with all these inhalers. Some work better for some people and others work better for others. But again, we don't necessarily look at that when we're talking about these 
um, studies. We assume that people are going to use their inhaler device or their nebulizer exactly as they're instructed. And from time to time, people check in during the research process and they demonstrate the proper technique and that sort of thing. But I can tell you from my own practice, if you're not constantly, almost constantly um, re, uh, reviewing these issues, uh, monthly even in some cases, you're going to have some fall off. You're going to have some, some difficulty in that technique. That's just human nature. If you're not practicing a skill all the time, then you may not necessarily see uh, continued competence with that skill. We know this. We know that this is an issue, but we kind of ignore it. We know it's an issue because over the last 40 years, we keep doing these studies, uh, study after study after study, about inhaler techniques and we see the rates of critical failures are very similar starting 40 years ago and going through the current day that tells us that we're not we're we're not catching the low-hanging fruit we might have some fantastic molecules on the market right now they might help a whole bunch more people than we anticipate but we don't know because we don't do anything about the very the very basic parts of it. We're not looking at the delivery of the medication. And so if you're not actually delivering the medication, how can you say whether it works or not? So that's our big confounding factor here. When we're looking at a lot of these studies, we also have to make sure that we're addressing our own biases too, because again, you know, we'll go back to the, um, We'll go back to the whole idea of doing a thing. You know, we talked about that with the, the cardiac interventions, the heart stuff. That is a thing called action bias. And this is a type of cognitive bias that, you know, again, this is not any kind of ill intent or anything like that. This is just kind of human nature. These are biases that exist within our psyche that we have to at least be aware of so that we can counteract them, so that we can adjust for them, so that we can make the proper interpretations of the results we get. So this one is called an action bias. And as described on uh, one particular website called the, the Board of Innovation, which I liked just because it was a fantastic uh, summary of a lot of these things, I want to give them credit for it. Um, the action bias is when faced with ambiguity, um, you tend to favor doing something or really anything without a prior analysis, even if it might be counterproductive. So the idea is I have to do a thing, even if I don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be, or even, uh, if, you know, the data is a little bit fuzzy, my preference is going to be doing a thing rather than not doing a thing. And so that, again, gets us back into, well, we should be doing a procedure rather than just letting things slide. We're, I mean, I guess we're technically doing a thing, quote unquote, if we're telling people how to improve their lifestyle or, you know, giving them a medication, but we're not really doing. We don't have an action that we can take. And so we're less likely to, if the choice is, again, in the case of doing a procedure or handing out medication, we're probably going to recommend doing the procedure. That, again, is just human nature. That's not trying to waste money. That's not trying to inflict uh, side effects on somebody, complications. That's just human nature. But we have to start being more aware of that as we're looking at how we interpret data. A couple of other big ones that, I, that we need to be aware of is the idea of authority bias. 
And this is where we start kind of diving into where we are with the coronavirus stuff, because um, the idea of the authority virus, excuse me, the authority virus, that's a whole other issue. But the idea of the authority bias is that we're going to, if we have a team of people, somebody who has an authority position is probably going to have a more, they're going to gain more traction. The senior members, the more experienced members, that sort of thing. Those are the folks who are going to tend to take over. And again, it's not, there are groups, of course, where those people actively take over or explicitly try to take over. But that also happens when you have a completely collegial, collaborative environment. So it's important to not necessarily give voice to or give, give too much voice to one particular subset of category. And we're seeing that a lot now in some of the clinical trials or the clinical data that's coming out from um, the, the COVID-19, the actual disease that comes from this novel coronavirus in, here in 2020. Um, we're seeing that if an expert, again, quote unquote, somebody we respect, somebody who has a lot of experience in critical care, if we're seeing that they publish data, any data, even anecdotal data, which I know is kind of a contradiction in terms, but um, that's kind of what we've got right now. Even whenever they publish something, we jump on that. We assume that it's going to be correct. We assume that it's going to be borne out. And we assume that that is the proper course of treatment. And so that has led to, again, this is not to be political, but this has led to all of the azithromycin and, and uh, chloroquine uh, mixes and, and assuming that that's going to work. It's going to assume that, or it's the assumption that everything is acting just like acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is something we've, we've fought in critical care for many, many years. We, we want to assume that we can apply those informations there because um, X, Y, and Z saw it in, in their ICU. And we keep kind of bouncing back and forth from all of these treatments because we don't know. And so we assume, well, okay, this person's an expert. They're going to know. I've run into that myself, as a matter of fact, because I, I actually on the other side of things, because I am for whatever reason, regarded as somebody who is fairly knowledgeable about COPD. And so when this whole thing was started, this whole uh, coronavirus thing started pushing out, had a lot of people say, hey, we've got respiratory conditions. We're a little concerned about how this is going to look for us. And I was one of the many that said, well, right now it's not looking like it's going to be too dramatic or anything like that. Stay away from big cities, stay away from, you know, take care, use your, your common sense, washing your hands and all that sort of thing. And you should be fine. And of course now a couple months into it, this is in April where I'm recording this. We know that it is a big deal and it had, it fooled a lot of us in the public health sector. Many of us, it did not. And so credit to them, but it's also important for those of us who did make the mistake to come out and admit that, um, because, we are beneficiaries, perhaps, of that authority bias. And with that, with great power comes great responsibility. With great authority comes great responsibility as well. And when you are that role model slash voice of reason, whatever, you, it's important to not take advantage of that. Similarly, we have, and many people have probably seen this before, heard of this before, this idea of confirmation bias where we want to take a new, perhaps unique, or much like the coronavirus, a novel set of data, and we want to shoehorn that into what we already know. 
you know, again, this is where the experts say, well, this looks like ARDS. So, okay, well, that, okay, let's treat it like ARDS then. Instead of saying, you know, now we know that there's kind of these two different tracks of COVID-19 where some people benefit from certain ventilator settings, some people may benefit from just being on extra oxygen. We, you know, again, try to use new data and conform it to our confirmation. We want, we want to recognize stuff. We want it to adapt to, we want it to be familiar. We want it to be plug and play basically. And that again can be an issue because again, we're seeing, we probably could have made more rapid decisions were we not fallible humans that were stuck in, you know, stuck with these, these cognitive biases. Again, that's not, it's not to shame anybody. It's not to, to ridicule or to blame or anything like that. It's just to say, these are things we must be aware of when it comes to research, whatever field we're in, whatever specialty we're in, whatever discipline we're in, we have to be aware of these biases and we have to overcome them. The last one I want to talk about real quick, uh, because I also think it's important and fits in really well with, um, well, with a lot of the, the therapy options that have been supposedly created for uh, COVID-19 is this idea kind of going kind of hand in hand with the idea of doing something is better than doing nothing. Doing something new, doing something creative, doing inventing something is also more important than doing anything. We call this the, the pro-innovation bias. And so things that are new, things that are creative, things that are unique, we haven't seen before, those are somehow inherently better than standard treatments. You know, again, this is kind of the idea going back to the, the cardiac stuff. Um, we've got these new stents. We've got to put these in because they're going to be better because they're new. We wouldn't have innovated if it wasn't better, right? And in the COPD world where I live, we see that also a lot of folks assume that because there's a new medication out there it must be better. Well, not so much because again, we've got to look at all those other confounding factors, the delivery device, the particular uh, methods of action, you know, what, what kind of situation does it work best in? We have these new, new, um, bronchoscopic, less invasive surgery, surgery options. Do they work well for everybody? No. Do we, think do we assume that they might work well for everybody in many cases yeah we absolutely do so we have to be aware of these shortcomings when we're evaluating data uh, objectively and critically so that we stop making quite as many of these assumptions and we can be a little bit more judicious with the resources we put out there so there are a couple of big takeaways from a lot of these messages we have to be careful that we're actually looking at not necessarily evidence for success, but evidence for value. And again, this part will probably get a little bit soapboxy for some people. So skip ahead a minute or so if you, if you don't want this. But I have been in too many cases of end of life care where we keep somebody going on a ventilator or we keep pushing whatever to keep them simply alive, to again, kind of extend that clock, to continue that metaphor, without looking at what it's like to be in that situation. 
And I can tell you, I have not been consciously on a ventilator myself. I've, I've had surgery a couple of times. Um, so I have been pretty well sedated before the tube drops and all that stuff. But even the after effects of that are not terribly pleasant. And from everything I have ever read and everybody I've ever talked to, it is not a lot of fun to be on a ventilator, which makes sense. You have a big hunk of plastic in your throat. You have a machine that is forcibly moving air into your lungs, whether you want it or not. In some cases, you're anxious, you're nervous, you're not in your right mind because you've got a dozen different medications on board. It's not great. And in many cases, especially in acute illness, you can't do stuff on a ventilator. You know, of course, if you have chronic conditions and you have a tracheostomy and all that sort of thing, there are lots and lots of people who live very full, fulfilling lives who are on a mechanical ventilator as support. But when you're in the ICU, it's really hard to do. You know, you are largely borderline conscious at best. It's difficult to get up and move around. It takes a lot of support staff, and especially in a situation now where ICUs and hospitals are, are, are flooded with by resources or resource demands, at least. It's difficult to get up and move around. It's difficult to interact with family members. It's difficult to interact with any human, whether it's a caregiver or a clinician, family, friends, whoever it is. And we have a lot of people who that's how they spend the last couple of weeks of their life because we assume that living longer equals living better. And what we need to be looking at is what value are we providing? Not just financial value. I mean, whether we like to admit it or not, that's going to be a conversation. It's a conversation that happens in any healthcare system, whether you want to chalk it up to socialism and death panels or our current fee-for-service model or any single payer. We always talk about value at some point on some level. And it makes sense because we're not just talking about financial value, although that is important, as I said. We have to talk about quality of life value, patient-reported outcome value, family value. Not just dollars and cents, not just ethical moral values, but what are we providing for what we're taking away? And that calculation can be difficult, different for pretty much anybody. There are people who, yes, they will say, I will endure whatever, keep me alive as long as you want, or as long as you can. There are people who don't want to make that calculation. There are people who say, you know what? I don't, I don't want the machines. I don't want any of that stuff. It's not worth it. It's not worth the value. And so we need to start looking a little bit more, even outside of, of that dramatic critical stuff, into heart conditions lung conditions you know do we want to put you at risk for complications by a, a surgical procedure or a bronchoscopic procedure or do we want to expose you to certain medications do we want to is the risk to benefit ratio acceptable to you we need to start considering that a little bit more before we're so hasty with saying this is the standard of care this is what you should do we don't have enough data in many cases to really make that quality, that value decision. We need to start looking at it more. We also need to go back and look at those issues that surround behavior and adherence to therapy. You know, just have we taught somebody how to use their inhaler properly? Have we taught them my, have we taught them the difference between a carbohydrate, a protein, and a fat? Have we taught 
you know, do people know how to use the tools that we are expecting them to use? Do they know how to use their EpiPen? Do they know when to take their medications? Do we know that, do they know that if a certain medication gives you an upset stomach, maybe you should take it with food or maybe you shouldn't take it with food? Are we making sure that we're addressing all of those issues and not simply taking yes for an answer? I don't know about any of you listening, but when I go to my doctor, my, my provider, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, whoever it is, I want to be the good patient. I want to get the gold star. I want to be the one who is doing the right thing. And maybe I'm not entirely honest about how often I miss a medication. Or I see this a lot too. You know, we have successfully stigmatized smoking in a lot of different ways. Maybe people aren't being entirely honest about how much they smoke. And we can't really help them if we don't know what the problem is. So we need to be a lot more understanding and accepting about the behaviors involved in therapy, not just medical therapy, not just a procedure, but taking care of the entire person. You notice I, I used a particular word there too. I didn't even just say patient because this is a person. We need to look at the person outside of just their medical context, and we need to make sure that we're making decisions appropriate to that. And finally, we need to make sure that we're all on the same page. Again, I, I said at the beginning, one of the most, one of the things I really hope to accomplish most with uh, Potato Cast and, and my other me uh, media stuff, COPD Navigator, all that kind of thing, I want all of us to be on the same page. Whether you are a clinician, whether you're a respiratory therapist, whether you're a nurse, doctor, nurse practitioner, uh, physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech therapist, social worker, um, anybody who I'm regrettably forgetting to mention, whether you are somebody who's living with a chronic condition, whether it's a lung condition, heart condition, kidney condition, whatever, whether you're a caregiver, whether you're a public health uh, official, or we need to be looking at these issues from all of these different perspectives so that we can help identify each other's cognitive biases and overcome them. So that we get everybody's input, we get everybody's feedback, and we can make the best possible solution for the situation. It's really what it comes down to is teamwork. Teamwork and making sure we're accounting for all of those confounding factors, which is easier with teamwork. So hopefully uh, you got something out of this episode this time around. Um, hopefully we're going to be able to get these out on a little bit more um, ready basis, also a little bit more frequency. If you have any questions, if you have any suggestions, I would love to interact with you. Please send me an email at uh, potatocast at copdnavigator.net. Um, you can check me out either at uh, on Twitter at Mucophile or at COPD Navigator, and you can find me pretty much anywhere on Facebook and YouTube by, again, searching COPD Navigator. Uh, so, again, my name is Mike Hess. This is the Potato Cast. Thank you very much for tuning in. Take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and keep breathing easy.